0: Let's pray one more time. Our God and our Father, I myself feel like we've ha- already had a rich feast in just everything that we just sang. I know I, I myself need to just stop for a moment and tell myself, Jed, everything that you just sang is true. Believe it rest in it rejoice in it take heart by it so god i god our father i just want to begin this morning by saying thank you thank you that you are you thank you that you are the god who is there you are better you are a better god infinitely better than the god we would have scripted for ourselves thank you thank you for you thank you that you have come Thank you that you have come in the flesh and your Son and died for us, died for our sins, so that we might stand righteous before you. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are risen from the dead and that in your resurrection life, we have life now. In fact, we have all things. So we just say, thank you. Thank you, and we ask, so then, will you do yet still more now in the preaching of your word? Will you make your word clear And will you, by your spirit, continue what you've already done this morning and work in us, we ask. Show us you, Lord Jesus, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The Corinthian church is divided, chapter 1, verse 10 of 1 Corinthians. That's because, chapter 3, verse 1, they are largely immature, immature and unspiritual. One person says chapter 1 verse 12 I follow Paul, another follows Apollos, another Jed Brown, another one says well Mike Bowers says and then there's always that one guy you know that says oh yeah, well I follow Jesus. I'm biblical, you know. Which you chuckle because and all of course all the others say to that you mean I'm not following Jesus? You mean I'm not biblical? The result is envy and bitterness and anger everywhere. The pride of one person activates the pride in the other. So, elsewhere, this is why Paul says in Galatians 5, 25, and 26, that if someone is conceited, what happens is they provoke others to envy and pride, which is profoundly unspiritual. Or, as Paul puts it there, not keeping in step with the Spirit. Thus, Paul says in Ephesians that what really grieves the Holy Spirit is not you know, those really big-ticket-item sins. But, Ephesians 4, verses 30 and 31, bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor. That's what really gets the Spirit. The fundamental cause of all of that, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is that, underlying all of that, is that we are living by the wisdom of man, not the foolishness of God. So, I'm going to revisit today, first, chapters one and two of First Corinthians to remind us of what this foolishness of God is, what Paul means by that. Then we will consider um, uh, just how we are to apply this, just what we are to do about this as we look briefly at chapter three. The foolishness of God, the foolishness of God is this. chapter one, verse twenty one. That he intentionally chose, God intentionally chose to deliver his grace and salvation in a manner and a package that everyone in the world would deem foolish. God designed it that way. So so think of it this way. I, I think I have a very high, very artistic chart here to show you. Yeah. Um, and, Inside that circle, inside that circle is all human wisdom from Adam until the end of time. Inside that circle is all human wisdom. So God looked at that and he volitionally chose, he intentionally chose to deliver his grace and salvation to the world in a way that everyone inside that circle, Jews, Greeks, Romans, slaves, free, rich, poor, everybody, modern Americans and People in the jungle, everyone, would consider it foolish, folly. Chapter 1, verse 18. Of course, Harvard and Stanford scholars find it foolish, of course. But Paul says this is universal. This is universal. There's a uh, retired missionary couple that now live in in Sacramento who spent years with an unreached uh, tribe in Papua New Guinea. And uh, they took years learning the language writing it down, first earning trust, then learning the language, then writing it down. And then they prepared a a play that the two of them and the family would act out about God's talk, the Bible. And they acted out the main stories and Jesus' teaching, and then they finally, they really built it up. They finally got to the big moment, the cross, and then finally the resurrection, the empty tomb. And can you guess how the tribe responded? (laughs) They went... Ser- no joke. They seriously went, that's it? That's, that's it? <laughs> There's not anything more to this? Even the, the tribe in Papua New Guinea thought it was foolish. Foolish. No different than a Stanford sociology professor. But God would save that tribe, but He would do it by His own power, not by the ingenuity of the missionaries, but by, as we will see, His Spirit. Thus, Paul says, God did not package salvation in human wisdom, sending it, you know, through a wise guru sitting on top of a mountain with his legs crossed, handing out fortune cookies. You know, that's not how God did it. God did it not through Deepak Chopra. You you don't don't find the wisdom of God by going to Harvard, especially these days, but, (laughs) chapter 2, verse 10, by the Spirit. By the Spirit. Um, go on to the next, the next slide. Yeah. So there's God's wisdom outside the system, completely outside the system of human wisdom, and the only way that His wisdom comes into our system is by. Is there one more beautiful slide there, brother? There it is. By the Spirit. By the Spirit. And God intentionally chose to package it in a way that all the wisdom of this age would we'll call it foolish and folly. And as we will, we will see in a moment, just what this wisdom is. Um, the gospel cannot be discerned at all for what it is, chapter 1, verse 18, except by the wisdom and the power of God, except by chapter 2, verse 14, by the Spirit, by the Spirit. In this way, God shames the wise of the world, chapter 1, verse 27, so that, chapter 1, verse 29, no one may boast. The reason why God does it this way is that no one in the end may boast that we contributed anything to our salvation except our need, except our need of it. So then God gets all the glory and we get all the good. So just what is this wisdom of of above from above that comes by the Spirit? It's not a system of philosophy. It's not a higher wisdom, it's not Gnostic enlightenment, it's a person. Chapter 1, verse 23, Christ and Him crucified, Christ and Him crucified, whom we once regarded as Ben Shapiro does, a foolish rebel who got himself killed, We foolish, foolish, but he's now, because of the Spirit, become to us, chapter 1, verse 30, wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now, it was this wisdom, Christ and him crucified, that that constrained Paul, and how he related to the Corinthians, chapter two, verse one, not as the big man, he didn't come as the big man with lofty speech. In fact, Paul says in chapter one, verse seventeen, chapter one, verse seventeen, he says, "I in fact, did not come with any wisdom at all. I did not come speaking to you." any wisdom at all, worldly wisdom. So you heard that right. The original Greek in chapter 1 verse 17, if if your version says eloquent wisdom, the original Greek doesn't have the word eloquent. Paul says, I did not even come with any wisdom, not worldly wisdom. That is, Paul Then, because of how God has has come to the world, because of how God has brought his grace, Paul, in the same way, volitionally chose not to employ any highfalutin wisdom of this age in the turbulent founding of the Corinthian church, because, he says, he did not want to empty the cross of any of its power, any of its power. God's foolishness and man's wisdom cannot and will not occupy the same space. So then Paul walked in the footsteps of his God and intentionally, volitionally knew nothing among them except chapter two, verse two, the foolishness of God, Christ and him crucified. Why? Why did Paul do this? So that chapter two, verse five, their faith would rest on nothing inside the circle, nothing in this world, but in the power of God. What matters most in your life, is not that you have faith itself, and not that it is strong or weak. What matters most, and you do have faith, but what matters most is what your faith rests upon. Because, as Paul will say later in chapter 8, verse 1, knowledge, the wisdom of this age, it only puffs up the person who possesses it. We become bloated with the the noxious fumes of ourselves. But put any weight, put any weight on those bloated gases, and you'll see that they can't hold anything. Not what you want. Only wisdom from outside the system, Christ and Him crucified, can sustain and hold what we need the forgiveness of sins, and eternal life, and the redemption of the whole world. Only that foolishness can do it. So then, when we are boasting, and provoking one another, and competing and envying one another, and dividing into teams based on who has the higher enlightenment. I follow Tim Keller. I follow John Piper. Well, I follow John MacArthur. That's a tell. That's a tell, Paul says, when we do that, that we are, chapter 3, verse 1, unspiritual, immature, fleshly, living on the bile of pride. Pride still in need of being weaned off of the wisdom of this world. So, that's the background. (laughs) What do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, Paul begins to get down to brass tacks in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. And one thing I need to say here is that sometimes Paul makes one point in one sentence. And sometimes he makes one point in five paragraphs, (laughs) which is what he's done here. He's got an argument going, and that argument just keeps flowing. And we can only touch on each paragraph today. We will return to it on a future Sunday, chapter 3. But here is Paul's main point for the entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 3. He tells the Corinthians, and he tells us, to repent of being deceived by the world's wisdom, and become a fool, to become truly wise. And the way we will demonstrate that we have that wisdom, the way that we will demonstrate that you are God's fool, we, us, we will demonstrate that by being united together around Christ. So I'm going to unpack this now by making a point of application from each paragraph in chapter 3. And again, there's there's a lot more that we can say about it than we can now, but It's good for us to consider it as a whole. So the first point of application is this, from verses 1 through 5. How did I put it? You got it there? Observe and beware the immaturity of gospel amnesia. Observe and beware the immaturity of gospel amnesia. Wherever there is jealousy and strife, verse 3, those involved, Paul says, are living in a sub-Christian way. Sub-Christian. They have gospel amnesia. They've forgotten the foolishness of God. They are acting, verse 4, in a merely human way. Not Christian and not foolish, according to the foolishness of God. When you and I observe such things, we should assume, whether it's in ourselves or in others, that that's what's going on. We have gospel amnesia. That's the real issue. It doesn't matter how long the people involved have been going to church. As long as we have the disease of gospel amnesia, we remain immature, childlike in our faith. As much as we strive against each other, according to the wisdom of man, one-upping each other, according to the categories of, of, within inside the circle, from inside the circle, we show that we have forgotten the foolishness of God if we ever knew it in the first place. This is because, secondly, in verses five through nine, the foolishness of God inverts all our categories of importance. The foolishness of God inverts all our categories of importance. Okay, Paul says, okay, so if you're not to follow men, if you're not to follow Paul and Apollos and Tim Keller or Mike Bowers or Jed Brown, then, then, then who are they? Then what's, the, then what's their role in the system? Well, they're mere servants, Paul says. Migrant workers in God's field. Verse 5, each with an assigned task, one waters, one plants, Verse six, this reminds me of what I heard the other day about totem poles in the Northwest. We, we Americans assumed that the image at the top represented the most important person of all the people represented on the totem pole and then further scholarship came along and told us, no, it's the person at the bottom. Our, our way of looking at it was inverted. And when a tree grows, even to make a totem pole, Paul says, who was doing the miracle of the growth? Only God can make a tree. Not Tim Keller, not John MacArthur, not Mike Jed. Um, only God, God gives the growth. Now, on the other hand, he will reward his faithful laborers for their efforts, and his reward will be rich. Um, but here's the kicker. Here, here's the kicker. The, what, what is the glory of the whole thing? What what is the goal and, and the true glory of having a farmer and a field and workers in the field, but the harvest, the thing that grows out of the field, that's the glory of it. The point of it is what happens in the field, not the workers, not the farmer even. That's the glory of it. The whole point of having a field is producing a delicious, beautiful harvest. And Paul says, "What is that harvest and what is that field that's producing this beautiful harvest? But you, Corinthians, you grace church, you God works church, you're the point." He's building up to something here, but it's it's amazing what he, what he's building up to. This this point that I I trust will will challenge and help your point of view as you look around and you think about, what are we doing here right now? But then Paul changes the metaphor, importantly, and he moves from the metaphor of a field to the metaphor of a building. He says, you together, you all are his building, his temple. God's temple. So then thirdly, um, and and the, the point of this, This longer paragraph, verses 10 through 15, is this. When it it comes to one of God's field workers, you don't know for sure of the quality of their work until the last day of the harvest. Is that how I put it? Yeah. You don't know for sure the quality of the work of one of God's workers until the last day of the harvest. Because verse thirteen, on the last day, the last day will disclose whether or not every worker was faithful or not. You you can have some idea before then. You can look at your Bible. You can track, but you don't know for sure until the end. So, So don't follow men, Paul says. Don't follow men, and don't divide over men, he says. Because that man that you may that you're following now may very well be the next Ravi Zacharias who was lauded and appreciated for all of his worldly wisdom while he lived, but when he died after his last day, turned out to be a total lecher behind closed doors. When he faced the Lord, I'm convinced, verse 15, all of his reward was burned up, and if he was saved, if at all, it was only, as Paul says here, only as through fire. So what are you following him for? What are you dividing, following this guy for? So don't follow men, because you, 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 you won't even know if if they were worth following until the last day reveals it, is Paul's point. So then finally, or fourthly, in verses 16 and 17, I, I summarize it this way. Um, realize, realize that the glory of God is not in his workers, is not his workers, but his church, the bride. Realize that the glory of God is not his workers, but his church, the bride. In order to understand verses 16 and 17, you must realize that the yous here are plural. If you could bring the verse back up on the slide. So the best translation here would be to say y'all. Every time you hear the word you. You may very well have read and understood these verses before as individual. But it is decidedly not. That may very well be our American individualism breaking through here and your reading of it. But read it again. Do you not know that y'all are God's temple together and that God's spirit dwells within y'all? Whew, that changes things. Or as Peter put it in 1 Peter 2 verses 4 and 5, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by man because they thought it foolishness rejected because I thought him foolish but in the sight of God chosen and precious you yourselves all y'all are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ not you, not, not you the individual, but, but y'all are one spiritual house made up of many living stones and the, the point is not the stones, the point is the house and what lives inside the house, the glory of God by the Spirit inside of us. Does that blow, Does that make you feel privileged? It should. The temple of God is here Within us. The Spirit, God has condescended to dwell within us. And you say, You mean, you mean us? This raggedy band of people? Yes. Yes. That's why the early church, when when new Christians were catechized and they they came for their baptism, one of the things, one of the sort of the oaths that they oaths that they would make is that they would say, I believe in the church. Because you can't always see it. (laughs) It Must be perceived by faith. This is the temple of God? Yes, it is. That's what Paul's saying. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. We are one spiritual house made up of many living stones. Yes, God loves you. Yes, of course. But the church, together, is the glory of God's work, His planting in the world. Not, not the individual person, not Tim Keller, not John MacArthur, not Mike Bowers, Not certainly not Jed Brown, or whoever. We're just workers in the field. The church together is God's workmanship. The church is God's fine china. The church is, as Paul will put it later in Ephesians, his bride, his bride. So take care, friend, verse 17. Paul now comes to a sharp point that we must take at face value. If anyone destroys God's temple, He's not talking about you and your double-stuffed Oreos habit. Not what he's talking about at all. If anyone destroys God's temple with envy and provoking to pride and strife and divisions and one-upping each other, it says here, God will destroy him. That's what it says. This is not a promise that we embroider on a doily, you know, in frame. Um, But it's a promise we need to heed all the same. You mess with God's bride, and God will mess with you. Because this is his fine china, his church. This is his bride. This is why I'm convinced that later Paul will say in chapter 11 verse 30 that some Corinthians had become sick and even died. He's not saying that every time somebody comes sick it's because there's sin or something. Not at all. But but some were taking communion in an unworthy manner and by that Paul means in 11 verse 29 that they were not discerning the body and by that discerning the body I believe what he means there is they were not thinking about considering the body of Christ, but not the literal body of Christ on the cross, but the body of Christ, all the people around. And then people were showing up, getting drunk, you know, eating before this person or bringing more food because they were wealthy and the poor person didn't have any. And the Spirit of God went, Bleh! spit it out, I want none of that. And Paul says, God wants none of that so much that he would actually bring some to be sick and even die so that it would stop. God will take losses like that for the sake of his bride. You mess with God's bride, God will mess with you. And we, we the American church, we're not far beyond the Corinthian church we're individualistic, we're, we pursue ourselves, and we have very little regard for the foolishness of God. We, we, we think far more in earthly American categories than we realize. That's, that's why I think that the American church has become so impotent in our age. God would rather take massive losses in our country than bless the wisdom of this world. The world calls this thing, what we're doing now, a dancing bear act, and we're all too willing to show them that they're right. But we need to see the church through the eyes of the foolishness of God, that that God is condescended to dwell amongst us here. This is God's fine china. This is the very temple of God. Can you believe it? And his temple, Paul says, is holy, he says, which means set aside to be cherished by him like a bride like a bride. And you all, not you individually, but you all are the temple. You are that bride. You can, you can do whatever, you know, you can do pretty much whatever you want with God and His servants and they will be long-suffering. You know, like when Peter was in jail in Philippians 1 and he says that other people were preaching in his place to make him look bad. And what was Paul's reply? yeah, At least the gospels preached. (laughs) Will I rot in jail? (laughs) Let's shrug the shoulders. But when the Judaizers in Galatians three came along and they were tweaking the gospel and changing the gospel, you could almost hear. You could almost feel Paul spit out of the page. He was so stinking upset. You can even crucify God on a cross, but don't mess with His bride don't mess with his bride. You mess with his cherished beloved and he will mess with you. So Paul's last point and the one that we must really hold on to that brings everything together, his entire point together, and this is truly the motivation, the motivation behind all of this that I would challenge you to ruminate on this week is in verses 18 through 23. And the last point is this. I summarize it this way. All things are yours. Act like it. (laughs) All things are yours, Jed. So act like it. Paul ends by challenging us not to deceive ourselves. Verse 18 Don't be deceived. The, The guy at the top of the totem pole is not most important to God. You all are the church, you are his cherished, beloved bride. So, Look around, view your world, view the church through the foolishness of God. And so then, verse 21, let no one boast in men. Let no one boast in men. And now we come to the the truth and the motivation that we must ruminate on that we will spend time on, on future Sundays. Verse 21, Paul says, all things are yours. In fact, he says it twice. All things are yours. I happen to believe that when Paul says, all things are yours, what he means is that all things are yours. That's, that's what he means. And note that it is present tense. Present tense. It, it, this is not, uh, all things are, will become yours on the last day. No, he says, all things are yours this very moment. They are yours. Let it sit on you. Let this sit on you. Because of the resurrection of Christ, and because of his ascension to heaven, and because by faith, if you are in Christ, that's because you are you are united to him by faith. So you are you are united, you are in him, and therefore all this true about him is true about you, then because you are in him, all things are now belong to you as if you yourself are ascended and reigning on high at the right hand of the Father. You have come into possession of all things. God now is working all things, all things for your good, you who love him, Romans 8. You, y'all, the church, are the, are the glory of God's work in the world, the, the masterpiece of God, the glory of all of his doings, And everything else serves that now. Everything else in the world is serving you by God's sovereign ordaining of all things. Whether it's John MacArthur or Tim Keller or Mike or Jed or the United States or China or Israel or Palestine or the state capital or the economy or life or even death. Even death now, even death now is your servant. Even now, because of the resurrection of Christ, death itself is just a lowly doorman saying, here, enter into paradise. Everything now serves you. You now possess, you now have all things. So, because they all serve you, because now God now causes all things to bend to serve you, to to bring you into his glorious kingdom, to reign with him forever and ever, because of all that, because you are Christ's and Christ is God's, if you if you already have everything, here's Paul's logic. If you already have everything, why are you striving for more to be better than the next guy? If you already have everything, why? Why, why are you striving to, to divide and get one up, to, to get a leg up, to be seen as better? What can that other person give you that you have not already received in Christ? That is, all things. It's like do the math. <laughs> you know? What is infinity plus one? <laughs> That's the logic here. Is that the wisdom of God who who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross? To compete with the next guy? To to own your place and hold on to it as if it's a life raft and you just jumped off the Titanic? No. If all things exist to serve you, if you already reign with Christ over it all, if you already own Mount Everest, what do you have to gain by asserting your dominance over that anthill? Nothing. But the reason why we view that anthill as being something is because we're operating immaturely, unspiritually by the wisdom of this world. Paul says, repent of that foolishness and adopt the foolishness of God that by that foolishness you may become truly wise truly wise filled with the spirit keeping in step with the spirit and as we keep in step with the spirit producing the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness what will produce around us is no longer striving and dividing and irritation and inflammation amongst people but unity unity around Christ a strange unity a strange unity that the rest of the world will look in at and go where did that come from can you tell me how you do that is this a put on is this candid camera no, really, tell me, what, what is going on here? What are you folks drinking? And then our answer will be nothing about John Piper or John MacArthur or whoever. We will let no one boast in men. We, we won't even, it won't occur to us to boast in men. Oh, you should look at our pastor. You know? Oh, come here. No, no, no. That won't come to your mind then. What will come to your mind is, oh, Christ and him crucified. And you think that's foolishness now, but come along with me and I'll tell you why it's not. You won't be leaving on a Sunday saying, oh, what a great sermon. You'll be leaving on Sunday saying, what a glorious God. <laughs> so let no one boast in men, because me, Mike, or anybody, any, any big shot, we're, we're just Migrant workers in God's field, you are the point. The church is the point of the field. Instead, let us be truly spiritual. Let us be truly spiritual, moving on to true maturity. True maturity, which looks like generous deference to one another. Generous giving way to one another. Not, not claiming our space, but gladly giving it up. Because what am I giving? Do the math. What is infinity minus One. The infinity. I'm not giving away anything. It's not mine. All things are mine. For what could that space give us? What what, what could this ministry position give me? What what, what what could looking better in people's eyes give me? What what could that give me? The Christ is not already given me. That is all things. Do the math, Paul says. Do the math. I want to ask you today, if, if you're here and you are not a Christian, if you've never given your life to Christ, I would invite you to do the math. One famous missionary, Jim Elliott, said, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. That's what we're talking about here today. Only in Christ and Him crucified do you find forgiveness of all of your sins, but more than just forgiveness, welcome welcome before the very throne room of God, the the very same smile that God beams down upon his resurrected son would beam then upon you. That's what God gives you, offers you in Christ if you would trust him and follow him as your Lord. So, um, to again apply this sermon, uh, we here, we we don't, we're not really into a lot of emotional manipulation, you know. We're not going to, do an altar call, and sing uh, as I am seven times until someone raises their hand. I just want to say, like, if if you have questions about Christ, I would like to ask you to do two things. Number one, I would invite you to ask God to give you his spirit, that he would reveal to you Christ no longer as foolishness, but as the very wisdom of God sent from above by his spirit. So will you ask God, Lord, give me your spirit. I I don't know what to think about this. Show me. That's beautiful. Pray that. And then if you would like to talk more about it, let's talk. Hit me up. Hit up Mike. Hit up anybody else that you see around here. Let, let's talk. Let's pray. Let's talk about it. Um, but for all of us, the need today is to see, to see and to hold on to just how infinitely you are loved and blessed in Christ. And how that that gift can never be taken away from you. It is given and it is held by the generous, sovereign grace of God to you. You're beloved. You you privileged people. (laughs) You privileged people. The apple of God's eye. In Christ. Yeah. So let's pray. Let, let's pray that God by His Spirit would indeed help us to understand these things and to live in them. Father, I I want to go first in this. Please grant me grace to repent of the ways that I follow worldly wisdom and think of things or people or situations in worldly categories. By the wisdom of this world, grant your foolishness to settle itself more deeply within me, to work its way down into the crevices of my soul, my mind, more deeply. Work it in. Make me pliable in your hands. Let me become foolish that I may become truly wise. And I pray for everyone else here as well. Make us foolish that we may become truly wise with a wisdom not of this world, but a wisdom, the only wisdom that can save and redeem and transform and truly unite the nations. And will you do all of this, please, for the glory of your name as the giver of all of these good gifts. I pray this in your blessed, wonderful name. Amen. Amen. All right, have a seat, please. (laughs) Uh, where is Mindy? There she is. Okay. Hi.
1: Got some questions for you. Okay. All right. All right. How do we battle the bitterness, wrath, and anger?
0: How do we battle bitterness, wrath, and anger? Um. Yeah. So, someone just said prayer. Uh, th- there's a couple. Well. Yeah. I don't want to preach another sermon. <laughs> um, but uh, very quickly, n- number one in Ephesians five, Paul uh, there puts his finger on uh, thankfulness. That thankfulness. Learning to be thankful always, to rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice, that's in Philippians. Um, he, he says there in Ephesians 5, um, uh, let's see. Um, but sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which is out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So first, there is, there is the discipline of thanksgiving when we remind ourselves of the foolishness of God as we preach the gospel to ourselves daily. We are um, driven to thankfulness. Um, the, however, the, the other thing that um, James says in James 4, I wish you could put it up on the slide because this is, this is worth pointing out. Very similar uh, textual note here to to the one we had this morning. James says, "What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you?" And what he means is among people. Not um, he goes on to say, "Is it is it not this that your passions are at war within you?" And what he means there is that you know there's one piece of Dan's glorious cinnamon rolls left, you know, and. Uh, me and Jim both have a passion for Dan's cinnamon rolls. And we both see at the same time that there's only one cinnamon roll left. And so we look at each other. And Jim's closer, so Jim takes off running, but I trip Jim. <laughs> I, I say that laughingly, but Paul says, or James goes on to say, You desire and do not have, and so you murder trip, or you you murder by slander. We don't literally shoot people in church, but we kill them all the same with gossip. And, um, and so he says, uh, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, he says, because you do not ask. In that scenario, it never occurred to me or Jim to just simply ask the God who has already given us all things, the God of all cinnamon rolls, God, can I, can I have a cinnamon roll too? You have all the cinnamon rolls. Never occurred to us. We do not have because we do not ask. And then he goes on to say, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, all you want is the cinnamon roll. In that moment, that's your effect of God. That's what's controlling you. That's what's ruling you. You are not filled by the Spirit. You're filled with a lust for cinnamon rolls. <laughs> um, not Jim, but me. Um, so this is why... This is why it says in the next verse, and by the way, you can't really read James if you're a snowflake. If, you know, because he, he doesn't pull any punches. He says in the next verse, you adulterous people, and the ESV has kind of softened that. Mm-hmm. You might think of other words that you might use instead of adulterous people. The reason why I saying that is that when Jim and I are running towards that thing and tripping each other for the last cinnamon roll, we are showing that both of us have already defected from God. And we're running after our true God. Um, so it's no coincidence that in Acts, there's two statements, first made by Peter and then made by Paul, in different places, different times, far apart from each other, but they both say the same thing, that Christianity is about repentance to God. To God, they both say. And so um, what Jim and I need to do in that moment, because then I trip Jim, but he gets up and punches me in the face, and then he grabs that last cinnamon roll, and he's just munching on it, and he's just looking at me. Oh, this is so good. And now how do I feel? I feel bitter and resentful and angry at Jim um, because I wanted the last cinnamon roll. And he got it, and he's just staring there. I hate it that he's enjoying himself. Um, What Jim and I both need to do is repent to God and confess the fact that our bitterness and anger is probably evidence that we had long before uh, defected from God. And... um, become adulterous toward him. Bitterness and, then give and anger. Then the cinnamon roll. So, what's that? Then give me the cinnamon <laughs> <Yeah>. roll. <laughs> and then Mike gets the cinnamon roll. It is a, th- th- there are deep spiritual ramifications uh, vertically between people and God when there is horizontally bitterness and anger between people. Okay, I'll stop there. Yeah. Again, I see Mike's better at this than I am. I got to I got to learn to be brief. But okay.
1: Okay, thank you. Okay. Uh what does what does volitionally mean?
0: Oh, uh thank you. I knew that was going to come up. <laughs> I'm a word person and I <laughs> let it go sometimes. Um uh it's it simply means uh I- intentionally. It wasn't like It wasn't like God created the gospel and then the whole world went foolish and God was like, oops, I guess I should have chosen a different way to do this. God intentionally chose to do it that way. He knew the world would say, this is foolish, so that he would get all the glory. Thank you. Good question. Okay, next,
1: next. If all things are ours and serve us, why are Christians controlled by godless and corrupt local and federal governmental <laughs> administrations. <laughs>
0: okay um, that, well let's just let's just be we're supposed to be here in spirit and in truth, right That's what Paul wants right That's what uh, Jesus says to the woman at the well in John four. Um, so we want we want to be careful by the spirit, but then in truth we want to say the basis of that question is largely true. <laughs> Most of our civil magistrates are indeed what, what that person just described. Um, so it would go- be good if that changed. It would be good if the world were, were ruled in accordance with the rule of Christ. That, that would be good. Let's, let's say that. And at the same time, until that happens, God is so sovereign, God is so in control that he uses even corrupt, I don't know how this person put it, corrupt godless uh, monkey mucks to uh, serve us, to serve our good. Their most evil deeds will serve our greatest good. How do I know that? Oh, because of the foolishness of God, because of the cross. The worst evil ever perpetrated by politicians in the history of the world has served for our infinite blessing forever and ever and ever. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Did we get some? Yeah. So, um, so that's yeah. That's it.
1: Okay. All right. Next. Yeah. Can you elaborate on working for your good? I mean, as it differs from the health and wealth gospel.
0: Oh, okay. Um, I think I understand. Um, OK, so on the one hand, um, boy, I wish I could add, what I'm hearing that question say is, like, for instance, laboring in prayer for my own healing, or, say, for instance, for the prospering of my business or the changing of my financial situation, which is presently not what I want it to be, how do I pursue that without falling into the health and wealth, prosperity gospel, the name it and claim it, um, speaking into the air and claiming an upgrade to first class, as Joel Osteen talks about in one of his books. Because all things are yours. Because all things are yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'll just say this for the sake of brevity. Um, we there is nothing wrong at all with james says you you do not have because you do not ask so ask god ask ask god to prosper your business seriously ask god to take away the disease ask god for whatever it is you want james says you your problem is that you don't ask um so ask ask but at the same time Think with with the foolishness of God. What is the foolishness of God? The the world says, in order to go up, you go up. And you climb on other people all along the way, right? And the foolishness of God says, the way you go up is by going down. So while you're asking God to do all these things for you, ask him every day, ask him. Knock at the door, Jesus said. Bug the judge. Um, But at the same time, you sh- don't be surprised when, say, if you become a Christian today, that God may actually make your life tougher at first um, because we follow in the steps of Christ, the living embodiment of the foolishness of God, who went down and then went up, gloriously so. Far beyond a corner office, far beyond a BMW. Thank you. Are we good?
1: Last uh, last one. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Can we lose rewards yes. by talking about them and boasting?
0: By talking about them and boasting? Um, yeah. 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 Jesus says that you know, like on the Sermon on the Mount, don't don't pray this long prayer, don't get up and. Go on and gobble, gobble. Don't, don't go on, don't go do that. Because when the person says after church, that was a really good prayer. There's your reward. That's just done. Jesus talks about, the, it's interesting, note in the Sermon on the Mount how often Jesus talks about reward. It's like, I don't know, like 12 times or something. It's It, it might be the most repeated thing he says in the Sermon on the Mount is reward. So live for reward because God is a lavish rewarder, far beyond what we deserve, all by grace. You did this one hour of work, here's all eternity, my kingdom forever. You know, he is a lavish rewarder, but yeah, don't, uh, don't be like Esau and trade it for a bowl of porridge of man's praise.